knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Welcome to Theology Gals. and. This is Colleen Sharp, and we have Angela here as my co-host, and tonight we will be talking to Tyler Vela. Anyone who's listened to our podcast for very long probably heard when we had him on, I think it was about a year ago exactly, about the Calvin Servetus situation, which I will link that episode. If you haven't listened to that episode, go listen to that episode because it's really, really good, very interesting. And Tyler podcasts at the Freed Thinker podcast, which I'm also going to link, and he's a contributor at The Mentionables. So you have to put The Mentionables. Did you say .org, right, Tyler? Yeah, .org. Okay. So we, we want to talk to you about apologetics and really kind of an introduction. We have a lot of a lot of listeners who kind of grew up in typical e- typical evangelicalism. Some of the apologetics that they're running into in reform circles is very different than what they grew up with. And so we just kind of want an introduction and, and what it looks like and stuff. But just to start, um, I guess we should just ask you first, what is apologetics? Sure. That's a, a good place to start. Apologetics is... Um, it comes from the Greek uh, root word apologia, um, which was not, you know, the, the common joke is it's, you know, not to apologize for something. And, and apologetic is, the, the word was a legal term when it, you made your public defense in court, for example, for yourself. Um, so it's, it's making your case for something, either positively mm-hmm. to defend yourself or um, a case against something else. Um, so you can have both negative and positive apologetics. So we're defending the, our faith. Yeah. So, well, and we do both because we have, you know, um, positive apologetics where we're defending the truth of Christianity. But a lot of like the work that I do is going to be negative apologetics where I'm actually going out and <clears throat> showing that something like naturalism um, is not a uh, valid um, a competing worldview um, in, in a reasonable type of sense. So I might be doing a negative apologetic against atheistic naturalism, for example. Uh, that's something I actually don't hear people talk about very much, that that negative apologetic. Yeah. 
Um, but we we do it we do it a lot in in the apologetics world. Um, anyone who's kind of familiar with it, if you're if you have a, an apologetics group that handles you know the cults, for example, or other world religions, a lot of times they're doing not just saying why Christianity is true, but they're actually doing negative apologetics and arguing, you know, why Islam or uh, Mormonism or something like that uh, does, doesn't line up to a proper reasonable standard or doesn't follow the evidence or something like that. Could you really quickly talk about just the different kinds of apologetics before we kind of get into stuff? Because I think some people may want to know about that. Yeah, well, there's a lot of apologetic theory that that, um, people debate because we're Christians and we argue about everything. Um, So there's there's a few questions that really drive different apologetics methods. Um, The biggest one, though, is about whether or not um, human reason is reliable or not. Um, that's going to be one of the biggest, um, the, one of the biggest factors. So there's a couple different types of apologetics. There is traditional apologetics. Um, traditional apologetics focuses on arguments for the existence of God, for example. So William Lane Craig, uh, is a good example of a traditional apologist. He's going to give philosophical arguments. Anyone who really likes Thomas Aquinas and the five ways and the arguments from a first cause and cosmological arguments, that's, that's traditional apologetics. Um, that is going to be, part of that is a viewpoint that uh, human reason um, is really unencumbered by sin and we can all um, kind of reason autonomously and come to proper conclusions. And so that if we argue properly, we can kind of argue someone to a, a proper uh, Christian conclusion. Um, they, they don't think that that is sufficient for salvation, right? They, they still think evangelism is necessary, but apologetics is kind of seen as a, a pre-evangelism um, that, that breaks down objections and props up reasons to believe and so forth. So that's classical apologetics. Um, evidentialism, evidentialist apologetics, is apologetics that seeks to use, surprisingly by the name, evidences. <laughs> um, so this is going to be someone like a Gary Habermas or um, a Mike Lacona. Um, even, even William Lane Craig, again, when he gets into arguments for the resurrection. This is uh, people who are going to engage in scientific arguments for the existence of God, fine-tuning arguments, for example. Um, this will be, again, Gary Habermas uh, looking at historical evidence for the resurrection um, to, to being, bring people to Christian faith. So that's, that's evidential, uh, apologetics. Then there is uh, cumulative case apologetics, which is basically uh, a little of column A and a little of column B and whatever works. <laughs> um, it's a cumulative case. They'll use whatever type of argument and resource they can have, but it's still along the along, along the lines of argument and evidence, um, and not really so much engaging with, um, larger questions of um, epistemology and, and our, our ability to reason. Um, I'm going to skip over one called reformed uh, <laughs> reformed epistemology um, because it's such a minor view, and I don't even think that I totally get it, <laughs> to be honest. So um, I'm going to pass over that one. But if anyone wants to follow up, that's um, Alvin Planninga's um, and uh, Planninga and Westfall, and there's a couple other philosophers. Um, it's, it's, there's very, very, very few people that argue for that. So usually you're not even going to run up against it. 
Um, the one that, that I hold, and um, one of the reasons why you asked me to come on uh, within the reform group is presuppositionalism. Presuppositionalism has been big since Cornelius Van Til um, really advocated for it in the mid 19th, or, sorry, mid 20th century. Um, and presuppositionalism is basically the view that um, that human reason and, and our ability to reason has been tainted by sin, just like everything else. It's an it's a reformed view that that looks at the scriptures and says, if we're being true to what the scriptures say, not just in our th theology but our apologetics, then our kind of reformed our, our reformed theology should drive our apologetics. And part of that is something like Romans 1, where the unbeliever has is an act of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So what Van Til basically said is um, the unbeliever and the believer, while on the surface we have things in common, we can both ostensibly use our reason and we can both talk about evidences, at a deeper level, level we have nothing in common. Um, uh, the, the Christian grounds everything on the existence of God. The unbeliever um, suppresses that, rejects that, and attempts to ground everything on their own personal autonomy. Um, and so there's, there's, a, there's a sharp dichotomy between, um, between our worldviews. And so what Van Tilt you know, famously said, he said, look, when, when the unbeliever and the, and, and the believer are coming into dialogue about the existence of God, the believer needs to argue at the level of worldview. The believer needs to look at the unbeliever and say, what is, what is your foundation? What's your standard for why you believe what you believe? Not just about facts and evidence, but for why you even can reason in the first place. Um, and so he engaged in what's called transcendental reasoning. Before I introduce it, I, I normally come at it a different way, one that people are familiar with. So are, are you both kind of familiar with William Lane Craig and some of his arguments? I am. I don't know, Angela, if you are. I am not. Oh, okay. So you might be if I bring this up. So William Lane Craig has this famous argument, the moral argument. Um, even if you don't know it's William Lane Craig, most people who have even like dipped a toe into apologetics have heard this argument. <clears throat> so the argument goes something like this. If God didn't exist, then objective moral values and duties wouldn't exist. But we know that objective moral values and duties do exist. Therefore, we know that God exists. It's a very common argument. Um, it's hotly debated, but um, I think pretty futilely debated by, by atheists. I think it's a pretty strong argument. Um, and it basically says if, if God wasn't there as the foundation um, if God is not the, the absolute foundation of, of goodness, if he's not the summum bonum of all things, um, and if he wasn't there as a rightful authority giving us our obligation, um, then there's no reason that we would have moral obligations and nothing would really be good or bad. Right. So a lot of a lot of preachers pick this up and they'll talk about, you know, without God, you can't have good or evil without God. You know, on on atheism, you know, we're just uh, we're just evolved beings. There's nothing in nature that imbues anything with intrinsic value. It just becomes subjective nihilism. Right. So, Angela, have you heard something like that, at least? Yeah, I think I have. Yeah. Um, 
So what's funny is there's this debate between, you know, uh, classical apologetists and evidentialists and presuppositionalists. And everyone says, oh, well, presuppositionalists, you guys just want to deny evidence and so on. The funny thing is the moral argument is a transcendental argument. It's a presuppositionalist argument. The reason why I say that is because presuppositionalists are going to say without God, the unbeliever has no standard for fill in the blank, whether it's morality or logic or laws of nature or whatever it is. So that's William Lang Craig's argument that without God, you don't have, there's the God, God is a necessary foundation. He's a, he's, he's what's called a transcendental necessity. He is a necessary precondition for morality to even exist in the first place. So the presuppositionalist comes along and says, well, we have the exact same problem when it comes to logic, right? Because logic, when you, when you start examining it and you start thinking about it, is this funny little set of rules, right? It's, you know, the, the law of non-contradiction, the law of excluded middle, the law of identity and so forth. And it's not clear that they're natural laws. They're not material. They're not, they don't extend into space. They're not temporal. They don't seem to be bound just to earth, right? They seem to be universal. They seem to be authoritative so that anyone who wants to be thinking properly kind of has to abide by them. Um, and it seems like they would transcend nature because it seems obvious that, that it would also be a controlling factor of the cosmos itself, such that, you know, if, if the world, if the cosmos existed, it wouldn't also not exist, right? So the whole cosmos seems to be kind of under the thumb of these, of these laws of logic. But laws of logic are clearly principles of thought, right? So they, 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 principles of thought aren't, aren't abstractions that, you know, exist in nature. They exist in minds. So the, the, the presuppositionalist is going to come along and we're going to say, well, on naturalism, um, there's no foundation for the atheist to even use logic in the first place, right? You need Christianity for that. Um, uh, you need, God is actually the necessary precondition for rationality. And so when the, the Christian presuppositionalist and the atheist come to debate, the Christian's going to say, well, look, before I start going into arguments about evidence for the resurrection, and before I start giving these arguments, like the arguments from the first cause, um, like the, you know, the, the other types of apologists would go, would do the presuppositionalist is going to look at the, the atheist and say, look, you can't even reason properly on your worldview. What you actually have to do is you have to presuppose my Christian worldview. You have to presuppose the existence of God, even if you don't know it, because in order for you to use reason, reason has to exist. And for reason to exist, God has to exist. Um, and so presuppositionalism is a, a form of apologetic that goes after the worldview because we understand that the scripture tells us that without God, you don't have these standards and that the unbeliever is actively suppressing these truths and unrighteousness. So Van Til gives this, you know, cute little analogy that, you know, the unbeliever is like the child who sits on their dad's lap to slap him in the face. Like they, they need to sit on the dad's lap to even reach up to the dad's face in the first place. Um, and so that's that's kind of a, a thumbnail sketch of of the presuppositionalist approach to apologetics. 
I'm kind of wondering when you um, just gave uh, the example that for an atheist to even use reason, they need God uh, because without God, you don't have reason. Is that exactly the sort of thing that you would say to an atheist in a conversation? And if so, I'm wondering sort of what does what do they say back to this? I, I'm kind of imagining them saying basically just, no, I don't. I'm an atheist and I have reason. <laughs> How does that conversation go? Yeah, and I, and I actually do say something very, very similar to that. Um, I try to I try to have a little bit. It's not as thumbnail. I try to have longer conversations and kind of work uh-huh. out, so it's not as as not as abrupt. Mm-hmm. But effectively, that's what I say. If you listen to my recent debate with uh, with Ben Watkins, um, I do a presuppositionalist critique of his view of morality, um, and mm-hmm. I do very much the same thing. The response is going to be very dependent on what type of atheist you're talking to. If you're talking okay. to someone like a Ben Watkins, who's a trained philosopher, brilliant young man, <clears throat> um, he's going to attack it differently than probably most of the unbelievers that your audience would run into. Because you know, just the sheer fact of it is most unbelievers aren't, <laughs> you know, uh, in, in higher education mm-hmm. in philosophy going through all the arguments. And so a lot of times there's the knee-jerk reaction, just like when the moral argument where they're like saying, well, are you trying to say that I, that I can't reason? Um, right in the moral argument, they're trying to say, well, are you trying to say that I, that I can't be moral? Of course I can be moral. I can help an old lady cross the street. That's usually the first re- response. And the response is, well, no, I'm not saying you can't use reason. I'm not saying you don't use logic. You're made in the image of God. Of course you, you're going to use logic. Right. Um, you, you can know that, you know, just because your dog exists doesn't, it means that it doesn't not exist. You can use the laws of logic. Mm-hmm. The question is if you can use it consistently within your own worldview. Mm. Uh, and and if you can have a justification for it within your worldview. And the answer to that is going to be no, and you would need to give a justification for it. So one of the things that I would argue is what's called the impossibility of the contrary, which basically means um, it's impossible, um, it's logically impossible for um, the contrary to be true, and the, and the contrary of God existing, that is. So it's impossible for... Um, not God um, as a proposition, uh, anything that falls under not God, which is everything that isn't God, mm. to be a foundation for the laws of logic. Um, okay. And in order for them to combat that, they would need to give an example. So they would need to give a reasonable explanation for how reason can exist on their naturalistic worldview. Um, and they're really not able to do so. I've, I've been doing this for uh, this approach for about 10 years now. Um, nothing new under the sun that I hear these days. Um, and they mm-hmm. all, a lot of them fall back on attempts to force science into the question, um, mm. which gets all kinds of fun because then they'll say, oh, well, we, um, you know, we might not be able to ground the laws of logic, but we have this thing over, you know, we have repeated exper- experiments and mm-hmm. observation where something that does exist um, doesn't also not exist, mm-hmm. which is fun because I get to point out, well, you know, are, are you sure that your observation is true and not also not true at the same time? <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, have to, you, you have to employ the laws of logic to even have, uh, you know, try to have empirical evidence in the first place. That's not right. an ex- escape. You're actually just kind of pushing the argument down the road um, a little bit. Mm-hmm. It's not an escape for you. Um, so that, that's one of the big ways they get out. Um, a, lot of, a lot of the objections just come down to 
um, well, you're just trying to obscure, you're trying to use philosophical arguments and all that kind of stuff, which, I, I mean, once you get in a conversation with, with someone like that, there, there's not really much you can go on because if you can't make valid arguments, then what's the point of trying to reason with them to begin with? Um, right. So, so that, that's kind of the presuppositionalist approach. Um, and it's important to remember that the presuppositionalist isn't against evidences. Um, we're not against arguments for the existence of God. We're not against arguments and evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. We're not against using those in, the, in, in your kind of apologetics toolbox. Really, the presuppositionalist is the ultimate cumulative case person. We're just saying that to start, you got to look at the presuppositions of the person you're talking to and expose the fact that they actually have no foundation and they need to rely on the truth of your worldview to begin with if they're even trying to protest to it. Um, mm-hmm. That really is the significant contribution of presuppositionalism. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, um, I know that probably some of our listeners are maybe thinking right about now that a lot of this sounds very technical. Yep. Um, can you talk maybe a little about, is, this, is apologetics useful for just sort of the everyday lay person um, a lot of, uh, I have a lot of friends that are stay-at-home moms. I'm a stay-at-home mom. Um, we make, you know, um, just regular everyday people friends. We have acquaintances. Is this, is, is this useful for us? And um, it, it, I, I guess I'm sort of wondering, is there an entry level, you know, that a basic level, basics that um, can help us in conversations that aren't necessarily debate level? Yes. So it's a very good question. Um, well, my, my recommendation for, for everyone kind of going into this and interested, interested in this topic is to just dive in as much as you can. With, mm-hmm. you, know, you, you don't got to go to school for it. Um, there, there's, lots of, there's lots of books, there's lots of resources, there's lots of podcasts um, that, that go over this um, and can give you a pretty good foundation for it. Um, if you, if you have time to, you know, I listen to podcasts while I help with dishes or while I'm in the shower, while I'm driving, you know, there's, 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 we're living in a time of just unprecedented resources. Mm-hmm. That's really helpful. Um, and I think the, the, the presuppositionalist apologetic, um, is the best synthesis of the biblical position on, um, what's what's called the noetic effects of sin or the the effects of sin on the mind and how it affects how we reason and so on and so forth the kind of the lay level application for it is is actually very simple you when when you're going into these types of arguments if if you're thinking about if you're trying to compare the two right let's so let's take something like an evidentialist argument for the resurrection there's a lot of study that needs to go into that. You need to look at the historical sources. You need to be familiar with comparative historical sources. You need to be familiar with extra biblical citations and the dates. And really, you need to be familiar with philosophical arguments about miracles and what's more plausible. I mean, Bayesian apologetics. If you're going to make the type of argument that a Gary Habermas or a William Lane Craig or Michael Kona does, you're doing a ton of research anyways. Um, so... It's not necessary that presuppositionalism takes more research than the others. Presuppositionalism also has the benefit of you don't need to know a bunch of facts. You don't actually mm. need to know all of, you know, the historical authors and when 
you know, plenty the younger wrote and the, the extra biblical citations and Josephus and the third, you don't need to know all that stuff. Once you get the concept of the, the unbelievers worldview cannot justify even their attempt to reason about it. That's really the most that you need to know. And then from there, just being a good Socratic and asking questions, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're, when you're talking to your friend, when you're talking to your friends, you know, on, on your worldview, what does it mean for us to think about things? What does it mean for us to reason about things? Um, how, how can you know that your reason is reliable on a naturalistic worldview? Because if it's all through, you know, blind processes and kind of uncaring uh, naturalism where, where, you know, reason is not the goal of the cosmos on that view, how did we get here? How did we get to reason? Why, why should we expect that what, what is happening in our brains along the laws of logic is going to map on to what we're observing out in the real world? Why can't contradictions be true? If that's just a principle of thought that resides only in minds, why do we see that in the, in the world? Um, Mm. And if, and if, you know, if minds are just the product of, of, you know, blind uh, evolution, why would we expect that, you know, a feature of a mind like the, the capacity to reason, why anything like non-contradiction existed in the world before human minds existed? Um, mm. So it, you don't need a lot of study to just start asking these questions of your unbelieving, you know, family and neighbors and friends. Um, and especially when you're doing apologetics and you have that humility of if they start asking you challenging questions back and you don't know the answer, say, I don't know. Let me find out for you. It, it's you don't actually need as much technical capacity for this type of apologetics um, as you do for others, even though on the face of it, it sounds very philosophical um, mm-hmm. and, and so forth. Just because we we tend to, you know, in the reform camp, we come up with big words for things. <laughs> so how would it how would it look if you you were kind of talking about like an atheist, but how would it be different? with my Mormon next door neighbor using this word of apologetics? It's a good, it's a really good question. So um, I think uh, presuppositionalism works much, much better uh, when you're dealing with an, uh, like um, an atheist or a secularist or someone who has no religious belief whatsoever. Um, Because it's, it's much easier to show that, that God um, is the foundation for laws of logic morality. What do you do when someone who has a competing God? Here, the Trinity actually is is vitally important. Um, the Trinity is the foundation, and this is where some study you'd need to understand their worldview and and ours. The Trinity grounds a lot of philosophical concepts. So, for example, mm. there's a philosophical major philosophical debate, like unanswered, goes back to the earliest days of Greek philosophy. Uh, it's called the problem of the one and the many. Um, so the problem of the one and the many is basically, um, how do we have this, how do we have this cosmos where kind of, um, everything is made up of this mysterious material stuff, but you have lots of different individual things. Um, how do you have, um, human beings who apparently are made up of, you know, composite parts, um, material and immaterial, but I'm one, but I'm one entity. Um, how, how do you have, um, it's, it's this just big problem of how do you have singulars and multiples? 
at the same time. It sounds like a weird problem, but it's this, it's this major problem that has just vexed philosophers for millennia. Um, the Trinity comes along and says, well, that is actually a reflection. The, the, the creation is actually a reflection of God himself. God himself is one and many um, at the same time in tandem, right? We have one God and three persons. Um, so why is it that the universe has this feature of one and the many? Well, because the creator of the universe has this feature of the one and the many. Um, you, you don't have that type of solution on other worldviews, for example. Um, when you're dealing with Mormons, um, you're also going to go into ultimate authorities. So what is the ultimate authority for the Mormon scriptures? Um, for the Christian, it's clear that the, the scriptures are the inspired word of God. Um, and as such, they cannot be, um, they cannot be broken. They cannot diverge with one another. They can't contradict one each other, one another, right? The Mormons are going to come along and they're going to say, oh, well, we have this, you know, we have the, the book of Mormon. There are points of contradictions with the Bible. They're going to try to say it's all inspired by one God, but they're actually breaking down um, how the nature of God is actually the grounds for our scriptural authority. Um, and so asking those questions, what is your foundation for your authority? What's, what's your standard when, when the Book of Mormon violates the Bible? What's your standard for adjudicating those two things? Well, they don't have one um, because in, in, order, in order to do that, they would need to either affirm some type of contradiction, which would be a violation of God's nature, or else they would have to say that whatever God they're worshiping can inspire a contradictory account, which just isn't the nature of God either. Um, and so they have, they have a, a God who they worship who, um, who can actually endorse contradictions, um, which is not, <laughs> it, it, let's put it this way, if you have an illogical being, they're not the best foundation for the laws of logic. Um, and so asking these, <laughs> asking these grounding questions is going to be the, is, is really the, the most productive way to go about using um, this approach if, you, if you're not, you know, super well-versed. Okay. I think that's, that's helpful. How would you suggest, um, is, is this something that I'm trying to think, how would I, this conversation is very interesting and I am now interested in apologetics and I want to, um, go deeper. I, this is a topic that I haven't studied before yet. I've been immersed in studying lots of things now for months. <laughs> and right. um, so if I want to move on to studying this topic, um, how would you suggest um, jumping in? And I'm kind of thinking, is this something to practice with other believers or um, just start up with my neighbor or what's the best way to get started? I'm always a big fan of humbly jumping in. So I kind of mentioned this before. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and just, you know, it, it takes practice. Um, like all things, it takes practice. Um, and if you start talking to your neighbor, but, but doing it humbly and doing, you know what, I, I, I'm not going to, uh, you know, by, by the grace of God, you might convert someone your first time. Um, but, you know, it, it might be awkward the first time and you might not have good answers and you might have to say, you know what, I don't know, let me get back to you. Or that's a really good point. You know, don't be afraid to, con you know, concede that they've made points that might feel like they've stumped you. Um, mm -hmm, and that's mm -hmm. fine. You don't have to have all the answers. Um, one, of, one of the things that, that I like to point out for people is that 
I'm sorry. Sometimes I think in analogy. So I think one of the benefits, of, uh, I think one of the benefits of Calvinism, for example, as an analogy, is that it gives us such a robust, strong assurance for our faith. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's it's and and mostly because our entire theology rests on the sovereignty and the good promises um, and covenant keeping nature of God. Um, presuppositional apologetics, I think, has a similar benefit. Even if you, you know, even if you just, you just strike out, you just, you just flub everything about trying to do a presuppositional apologetic, you can still stand confident that you are under the authority um, and the supreme sovereignty of God when you're presenting um, the gospel, when you are um, asking people about their foundations, um, and when you're holding up the scriptures as our ultimate authority because we know that God has given us the scriptures of all authority. You're on, you're on good grounds. Even if you haven't found a good way to explain it, you know, you're on solid grounds. Um, one of the, one of the, the kind of exegetical points that, that presuppositionalism um, is built on is this, this problem of personal autonomy and human autonomy. Um, it, it's, it's built in that little image, image of the child sitting on the father's lap to slap God in the face. And so Van Til, when he was coming up with this, looks back at the Garden of Eden and he, he, he's asking himself, he's like, what, what really is the first sin? Um, you know, not, not what was the first violation of the covenant, um, mm-hmm. but what was the actual first sin, right? We're all, we're all guilty in, in Adam, but sometimes when we read the story, we look at it, we're like, well, Eve clearly sinned first. Okay, well, the covenant is the reason why we're guilty in Adam, um, but Adam's sin wasn't the first sin, actually. Um, Eve's sin was. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we think Eve's first sin was when she took a bite of the apple. But Eve's first sin actually was before that. Eve's first sin was when the serpent came to her, right? Remember what the serpent says? Has, has God really said? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what's Eve's reaction? She entertains the thought. <laughs> right. She thinks about it. She, she actually, in, instead of falling back and saying, no, God's word is my ultimate authority, you know, mm-hmm. get, get away from me. I'm not going to listen to you. What she did is she put, as C.S. Lewis called it, she put God in the dock. She put God in the witness stand. And she's now standing and saying, I'm the arbiter of truth. It's up to me to decide which one of these, um, which one of these truth statements is going to be my authority. Is it, the, is it the statement of the serpent or is it the statement of God? And so she set herself as kind of the autonomous arbiter, the authority over which she can now judge if the scriptures are true or not. That was actually the first sin. It's a sin of pride. Um, that's kind of what got the okay. whole thing going, right? So, so when, we're, when we're going back to apologetics, we can actually stand on the authority of the scriptures and we can know it, it's, not, it's not our job, it's not our responsibility to, to stand there and try to defend the, the scriptures. We can for apologetics worth if we want to, but we don't need to. We don't need to sit there and try to defend that the scriptures are true or the scriptures should be our ultimate authority. Because what that does is that that then, if we're arguing with an unbeliever, we're then looking at them and saying, we're affirming them in their autonomy. We're saying, yeah, it's good for you to sit here and try to stand in autonomous authority over the scriptures, and you get to decide if God's revelation is good enough for you. Um, so the presuppositionalist is going to come along and we're, we're going to say, look, we're, we're not going to sit here and we're not going to affirm the unbeliever's autonomous reason. We're going to call them out on it. 
we're going to call them out and say, look, mm. whether or not you like it, you can't actually reason without God. You have to have God there in the first place. And it's the, and it's the God that the scriptures have revealed. Um, and so we're not going to affirm your, your, their autonomous reason. Um, that's where a lot of the debate between the classical approach and the presuppositionalist approach comes along. So the presuppositionalist approach, does it involve um, just giving straight scripture to the person that you're, you're um, having the conversation with? I know that's sort of um, uh, a sort of a thought process that I've come across before yeah. in um, some of our groups is, oh, well, I don't need argumentation. I'm just going to give them the word of God and that's it. Um, right. it I'm, I'm hearing that there's a synthesis there with what's going on in presuppositional apologetics. There, there is. And, and without going into too deep, there's, you know, there's kind of different thoughts about presuppositionalists. So you have Ventilians and Clarkians and you have uh, people who follow John Frame and there, there's, there's kind of different ways of thinking about it um, and, and employing it and different, different thoughts behind it. Um, which I'm not sure is that productive to go into, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. but it does lead to the list. So if you, so a lot of your listeners might be familiar or some might be the kind of the most, the most popular person who takes the name presuppositionalist is Cy Ten Bruggenkate. Um, I'm not the biggest fan of his, his apologetic, while it's a type of presuppositional is that kind of, I'm just going to give scripture. I'm, I'm not going to argue, um, it really is. And at one level, it's admirable in a rhetorical strategy. I don't think it works that well. Um, his his mm-hmm. argument really is, you know, um, the Bible is true because the Bible tells me the Bible is true. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. At one level, that is true to presuppositionalism. Um, if you're engaging in a public recorded debate with an atheist, that might not be the best argument to give as a rhetorical strategy. There are, there are better ways to package presuppositionalism in that case. Um, but it's not necessarily, it's not wrong to, to give scriptures to people. Um, mm-hmm. But I would make sure that I'm pointing out, if I'm giving scriptures to someone like that, if I'm talking to an unbeliever, rather than just throwing scriptures at them, right? Because the unbeliever is, is most likely going to sit there and be like, that's great. That's your book. I don't believe your book. You can quote it to me all day right. if you want. It's not going to do anything. Um, it's helpful to do that kind of presuppositional spade work first so they know why you're giving them the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, you can still cite scriptures. You can still say, you know, we, we know that God is eternal because of what we're told in, you know, Psalm 19. We, you know, we know that God is, a, is Trinity because of what we're told in, in John 1. We, you know, you, you can go through all those types of, those types of things and cite, you know, proof text for it. But it's still really helpful to go through those questions about about foundations and grounding the laws of logic, and and if that person um, can can give adequate foundations for logic and morality on their worldview, and then show that we can from the scriptures, and that's why we trust the scriptures, and then we're going to cite scriptures to them. Um, that's a much more robust way to do it than to just kind of be like, well, the Bible the Bible says that it's true, so I'm going to just quote the Bible at you now without doing any of that spade work first. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I think just practically speaking, most of us have engaged in conversations before where, I mean, we know just tossing a Bible verse at someone who's an unbeliever, that usually does not go over well. It's not, it it doesn't come across as a genuine engagement in conversation. So 
And I always think, you know, I always ask, well, put yourself, you know, put yourself in their shoes. Let's imagine for the sake of argument that Mormonism is true. Let's just for the sake of argument, let's imagine it. But you're not a Mormon. You're, you hold your exact same religious beliefs you have now. What if a Mormon came to you, even if they had the truth on their side and just started, you know, quoting passages at you from the Book of Mormon? That's not going right. to, you're not going to suddenly <laughs> be like, you know, know that their, that their position is true and start listening to them. They would need to do some type of engagement with you at a, at a, you know, at a worldview level to kind of knock down some of your barriers. Um, my, my, my apologetics professor used to call it, uh, he used to say, you just need to, uh, you know, poke, poke holes in the roof to start letting some water in. Um, right. and that will slowly kind of seep and saturate through, um, Van Til used to say, you need to drop, drop a nuke on their house. You know, he was, <laughs> you know, the part of the greatest generation. Um, so <laughs> that, the, you know, the, but it's that, it's that type of thing you need to start, you need to start kind of getting them off balance and poking some holes in the roof and having them realize like, Oh, I, I you know, I can't plug up all these holes. I, I do have a bunch of these problems where I can't, I can't ground it and I can't answer why there's laws of logic and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, so doing that spade work is going to be much more helpful, much more genuine. Um, and, and you're going to, like you said, you're going to have better interactions, more genuine interactions with them. You know, you said something earlier I, I wanted to ask about and didn't want to forget to ask you, but when you were describing the different types of apologetics and talked about presuppositional coming along with Van Til, was there any examples of this sort of thing being used be- prior to Van Til? Um, there, there was some. So, um, your Vantel is really sitting in a long tradition where it starts getting developed. I mean, you're going to have something like this showing up in in um, in Calvin. Um, there's some of it in the Reformers with their views of the sensus divinitatis or the sense of the divine um, in all humanity. Um, some of it gets developed out in different views on um, the image of God and the the effects of sin, the noetic effects of sin on the mind. Um, so you do have some of it, you have some of it all the way back in Augustine, but really Van Til is the one who, who kind of synthesized it all together, kind of put all the pieces of, of reform thought together um, within apologetics. Um, he was kind of at the right time where he's in, engaging with Dewey Verd and Schaefer and Kuiper and, and, and all of these other, you know, greats of Christian philosophers. Um, and he's kind of crossing swords with all of them and he's, and he's synthesizing them all together. And so really Van Til is, is the, the fountainhead for what we would consider modern presuppositionalism. Okay. Yeah. It, it, that's kind of what I figured. I was just wondering if you could talk a little about how, um, I know you're very studied in apologetics. Can you talk a little about how, um, learning, um, these methods and learning, um, uh, these arguments, how has that grown your personal faith rather, you know, not just getting you ready to talk to others, but how has that grown you and strengthened you? Yeah, it, it, it has a lot. Um, not, not as much. So I always tell people if you're, if you're going to study, if you only have time to study one thing, study biblical theology. Um, so I, I think some of the problems that we're having in um, American Christianity is the fact that we back into our biblical theology from a bunch of different disciplines, whether mm-hmm. it's sociology, philosophy. Uh, you know, I think I think Molinism is a philosophy in 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 pursuit of a biblical theology. We 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 don't actually take our biblical theology as as primary. Um, mm-hmm. So you know, if you can study one thing, study biblical theology, study the Bible. 
but if if you if you're interested, really interested in apologetics and coming to, and coming to these things, um, it is going to be very very helpful to your faith. I think it, it has been for me, um, but it's not maybe not in the way you think. At least um, for me, what it does is um, a couple things. So it it exposes me to arguments that I probably wouldn't come up with otherwise. Um, that are against, that are against my view, um, which I don't actually think you can be that strong in your view if you haven't handled the objections against it. Um, so be, because you just, you, you know, you know, you haven't, you haven't kind of tested your metal yet. You don't, you don't actually know how right. strong your view is because it, you haven't, it hasn't been exposed to any type of, any type of trials. Um, I think, I think doing that in the context of apologetics is very helpful, especially within the context of kind of an apologetics community that can come alongside you and help you. And you can see how other people might answer the questions and so on. Um, so there's some really good Facebook groups or discord groups or Google hangout groups for that. Um, but one of the other ways that it's also really helped me is over the last 10 years, I, I kind of jokingly said this at the very beginning, but there's nothing really new under the sun after a while. You realize mm-hmm. that, that um, the objections that atheists and unbelievers and cultists give now are really recycled objections. They're just rephrasing them different ways. It's very rare to come across really a genuinely novel objection. Um, And they've been answered um, a thousand times, a thousand different ways before. It's funny. There's a lot of objections to Christianity that you could actually give like four or five different, completely different valid responses to it. So it's not only, you know, we have one good response to it. We have lots of ways to handle these objections. Right. Um, and so it's really helped me kind of in the sense of understanding that if, if views, you know, that were opposing to Christianity had better arguments, then they would use better arguments. Like this mm-hmm. is really the best that they actually have. And it's not that hard to beat them. Um, the arguments that I find tend to pull people away from the faith are heavily emotionally driven Mm. um, and they're usually catching people off guard who aren't ready for them. So they come as a shock. So um, one of the examples that I give is, is Bart Ehrman. Um, Bart Ehrman wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus, which is a a book on textual criticism. It tries to show that, you know, there's, there's more, he calls them errors, but they're variants. There's more variants in the New Testament, you know, Greek manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Right. Mm. Now, if you're, if you haven't studied anything about, you know, the scriptures and, and textual variants, that's going to be very, very surprising. Um, and if he, you know, if he's saying, look, there, there are, there are more, and he's going to call them errors. There are more errors in our Greek manuscript tradition than there are words in the new Testament. If you're kind of a nominal believer or you haven't studied it, that really might shake you. And if you have no one around you to mm-hmm. kind of help you navigate through that, that might cause some problems for you. The problem is, is that if you study it for like 10 minutes, you'll realize that he's drastically over-exaggerating, um, and that Christian scholars have known and answered this uh, for uh, generations, and that actually we are the ones who have been uncovering all these things, and joyfully so. So all of these variations are actually signs of a well-refined uh, uh, you know, modern text for us. So it's actually a good thing to have all these variations once you actually study it. So um, it, it's Having some of that information is is really really 
um, really beneficial um, to kind of guard yourself against when these objections come to you. Especially as, especially as parents, you do, I mean, you're, yeah, you're dealing right. primarily with moms. You're, you're, a lot of this stuff is, is good to, to raise your kids, at least having a cursory understanding. I mean, when they go, mm-hmm. when they go away to college and they, you know, they finally, you know, if you haven't put them in public school, if, if they're homeschooled or private school and they go to a public college, for example, they go to their first, you know, sociology class, history class or something, the professor is going to start telling these things, these things. Mm-hmm. If they're not prepared, um, or at least if they're not at least comfortable that someone they know is a resource for them in church, online, in a Facebook group, if they, if, if they don't know that apologetics is even a thing and important, that's going to be, that is potentially a big problem. Right. And, and I think it's important to remember what you said, that there is nothing new under the sun. And so mm-hmm. if you are somebody who's new to the faith and somebody comes and throws something at you, it has, there is an answer to it. And so go and talk to your pastor or to some, someone that you have as a resource. Yeah. I mean, I, this is, I highly recommend um, apologetics ministries at every church. Um, usually at a church of any size over, you know, 40 or 50 people, someone is interested in apologetics. Um, someone has resources, um, that they are sharing with the pastor and the elders. Um, and you know, there's, there's all kinds of online resources and video and podcasts and blogs. And I I mean, they're just, they're everywhere now from a hundred different perspectives. And I would rather someone read an, you know, apologist like William Lane Craig, um, than nothing at all. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I respect his work a lot. Just because I'm a presuppositionalist doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, not recommend his work on a bunch of things. You, you've mentioned that there's a lot of blogs and resources out there. Are there any specific ones that, any podcasts or blogs or books that you would recommend that maybe for somebody who's very new to this? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I would recommend one of one of the ministries I'm involved with that you mentioned is the Mentionables. So the whole purpose of the of the Mentionables was uh, Joel Furches, who kind of was the brainchild behind it, said basically, "Look, we want apologetics to to be happen to happen around our churches, to happen around the country, but to do it in a way that is affordable for churches um, that spread. You know, not every church can." can pay to have a conference where you have William Lane Craig um, and Mike Lacona and all these big name speakers come. But there's a lot of people that are doing apologetics kind of at a lay level that have podcasts and blogs. Um, And so we want to set up kind of like the B team of apologetics. Um, That's what we are. Um, And so churches can have, can, you know, invite us and, and a lot of times we'll do it just at cost. Um, to just host and put us in someone's houses. We'll, we'll sleep on someone's couch to put on these, these conferences. Um, so there, there, you know, the mentionables is a really good example. There's like 15 of us, all of us, you know, there's Calvinists, there's Arminians, there's presuppositionalists, there's Thomists, there's classical. I mean, there's a huge variety somewhere, someone somewhere in that group is an expert on something that a person is asking about. Um, and so groups like that are really helpful. The poached egg is very helpful. Tech, uh, tectonics. Uh, I always forget if it's .org or .com is very helpful. Um, reasonable faith, it, you know, they're, they're, they're questions of the week. So, you know, I don't always agree with how um, William Lane Craig answers things, but sometimes he's, you know, when it comes to a lot of philosophical things, he's spot on for a lot of things. Um, there's, there's lots of resources. Um, there's um, uh, one of the best ways to kind of get involved 
is to find a really good Facebook group. Um, so there's uh, the Apologetics Academy um, is a really, really good one that I recommend. Um, and go in there. And if someone's asking you a question, put it in there. Someone's going to have resources to give you. Someone's going to be able to help you walk you through it. There'll be discussions there. There's blogs there. There's, there's just there's ample resources now. Um, that, that's a good way to, to get into it, um, which I recommend. And on our last podcast, the, the gal that we had on who grew up in Mormonism and became a Christian several years ago, she has a women's apologetics group too, which we recommended last week. So if anyone didn't hear our last episode, I linked that in our, in our last weeks. There's another, there's another gal named Sarah... Anchorman, I think is her name, something like that. She does a, a women in apologetics ministry. Okay. I have to look, look her up too. So, well, th- I think this was really helpful. I think it was a, a great mm-hmm. introduction to apologetics. I think anyone who is new to this and just wanting to even understand the basics is going to have learned a lot from, from all of these things, Tyler. So I really appreciate you coming on to talk to us about this. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. I, I, I love apologetics. So um, I, think it's, I think it's vital for the church to do. So any, any chance to, to help endorse it and encourage it and, and let people know, you know, start, start small. And, um, you know, I, I, I found that a lot of people have their kind of group of friends are interested in the same things. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually, you know, some people are like, well, where do I start? Do I start with, you know, textual criticism of the Bible? Do I start with the resurrection? Do I start with naturalism? Do it, you know, where do I start? And I just always say, you know, start with the questions people are asking you. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. that, that's a good, that's a good place that, to start. Yeah. Right into those questions. That, that's great advice. Thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode of Theology Gals. Anything that was mentioned on the episode, you can find in the episode notes. We appreciate you joining us, and we will see you next week.